Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Chitheads. My guest today is Dr. Miles Neal. Miles Neal is a Buddhist psychotherapist in private practice, assistant director of the Nalanda Institute for Contemplative Science, clinical instructor of psychology at Weill Cornell Medical College, and contributing expert on mindfulness meditation for the BBC World Service. Miles earned a doctoral degree in clinical psychology from the California Institute of Integral Studies and has spent 20 years studying Buddhism under American Buddhist scholars Joe Luizo and Robert Thurman, as well as Tibetan masters Gaelic Rinpoche and Lama Zopa. Dr. Neal's approach to personal healing and transformation has inf is informed by contemplative neuroscience, an eclectic hybrid of Indo-Tibetan Buddhist psychology and meditative arts, depth psychotherapy, and the current neuroscience of trauma resilience. So with that, hello, Miles. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Jacob. I've been uh, looking forward to this interview because I've had such a, a pleasant experience uh, listening to the former uh, interviews that you've conducted and I think your your uh, you know your followers and your um, supporters of your website and your listeners are really truly blessed to have such an astute and um, you know invigorating and well well sort of steeped in knowledge uh, interviewer to, to sort of guide the process so I'm so so happy to be here thanks miles I really appreciate that compliment um, so, you know, we just got finished recording your lecture for the Radical Presence Conference, which is taking place July 15th through the 18th on our website. And it really was a fantastic talk. And thank you so much for giving it and sharing your wisdom with us. Um, so for those listeners who are interested in that talk, um, we're going to talk a little bit about some stuff that came up in that talk today. But, but for the full uh, effect, for the full experience, definitely make sure you um, tune in to uh, Miles's talk. So one of the things that you um, brought up that I think is so interesting, and I want to just dive right into it, is something that you've coined Mick Mindfulness. So I would love for you to just talk a little bit about McMindfulness. What is it? And then what is um, perhaps the, the approach to mindfulness that is, that is in, in contrast to this critique that you have? Yeah, sure. I'm, I'm, I'm also welcome everybody really to get the full story, uh, check out the lecture. But really, in, in essence, in, in around 2010, I wrote an article which was a critique or pushback on the mainstreaming and prolification of meditation and mindfulness that had just taken America by storm. You know, I think it was on every shelf and every other book was being called uh, mindful eating, mindful, you know, mm -hmm. poo-pooing, mindful, whatever it is. And like, and so I just sort of, I just cringed essentially and yeah. sort of, um, I define mindfulness as the extraction, dilution, commodification, and mass marketing of an Asian contemplative practice. And that, I mean, I essentially think that that's largely, maybe not largely, partially what has happened uh, for a variety of historical reasons. Mm -hmm. um, but my pushback is essentially that we've lost so much in trying to reach so many, and we've, we've also lost the point. You know, I think we, we basically mass market a... a uh, stress reduction technique right. when really, and yoga the same way, frankly. I mean, mm -hmm. I think my article was entitled McMindfulness and Frozen Yoga because I, 
you know, which is amazing. <laughs> I, I mean, I think that's they they were. I think they. I, I see the same phenom- phenomenon happening where yoga is essentialized as basically glorified calisthenics, mm-hmm. and a number of your interviewees have mentioned and commented, and a lot of them are historical scholars. So I I have much respect for their perspective. But but just as a consumer myself, I've been to yoga studios and I've wanted to practice yoga, and you know. $150 mats, mat, yoga mats and Lululemon merchandising and and feel-good propaganda, essentially, is less a comment on, I think, the technique and more a comment on our culture, like how our culture is so warped and, um, and sick, essentially. You know, I'm, I'm as a health provider, I mean, I think these are symptoms, less a comment on the technology and more a comment on the sickness or deprivation of our society mm. in which we have, we are so we reduce everything and commodify everything, including human services. Um, and we miss the essential ingredients sometimes. Um, and what are those essential ingredients? You know, so the, you know, I contrast McMindfulness with a secular mindfulness mo- movement, mm-hmm. which I have much more appreciation for because I see the secular mindfulness movement those that are propagating a mindfulness, a secular mindfulness technique that have an appreciation for where it comes from, they've actually taken the time to acknowledge its traditional sources, but then also made a healthy assessment that that's not for them, which I respect. Mm-hmm. And then they've done a healthy amount of training, okay? Because we don't, we, I, I'm not one that thinks that you can be qualified in a 200-hour yoga or meditation course. I don't, I think they're useful, but I think they're only entry points. I don't think that qualifies you to do very much. Uh, except for continue your study. Um, but someone who's done a, given a nod to the tradition, someone who's done extensive personal experience, someone who is somehow connected to an, an organization where there's checks and balances, and someone who's done a large amount of clinical research or uh, research, you know, effective-based research to support it, I think then offering meditation techniques with that kind of background or context, I think is a viable thing. And, mm-hmm. and then I'm happy to see many millions of people um, benefiting from that kind of, uh, you know, from that platform or from that standpoint. And then, of course, in the, in the talk that I gave, the third category, I mean, if we were going to break them down into three different kinds of mindfulness or mindfulness three ways is the way I talk about it, is mindfulness, the secular mindfulness movement that has legs, and then the full Monty mindfulness, which is a true appreciation for the Indic contemplative science and the curriculum around which mindfulness is only one component. Right. So, so you've offered that you know secular mindfulness has legs and you can appreciate it, but what do you think is lost in in shirking? Um, mindfulness of its tradition. So obviously, it's a, it's a it's a viable thread. But what is gained or what is enriched by um, by practicing mindfulness while still retaining some of the the um, you know m- maybe nourishment from the actual tradition that it came from? Yeah. So if you look at uh, Patanjali's Yoga Sutras and the Eight Limbs of Yoga, if you look at Buddha's Eightfold Path. These are recommendations for a path to liberation, okay? Mm -hmm. So that's where we have to start, is that there's no fucking around about what the purpose or intent of these technologies is. They are for the full elimination of self-imposed suffering. Mm -hmm. They are for transcendence, different, completely different way of being in the world. Not rainbows, 
coming out of your ears, not transcendence to another planet, completely transformed way of being. How do you want to be like Amma? How do you want to be like His Holiness? How do you want to be about like, more like some of these really mature, evolved, and yet embodied people? Mm -hmm. There are technologies. They don't just involve practices of breathing or prayer or sitting and watching your breath. They have much more to them. And if you were to really essentialize what that curriculum involves, in addition to the technologies, the techniques, you'd have to say view is one component and lifestyle is another. And if you look at Patanjali and if you look at uh, Buddhism, they're both subscribing to a multifaceted, comprehensive approach to transformation in which someone sees the deep nature of reality and therefore, as a result of that seeing, acknowledges how to function within relationship, within network, within proximity, how to act in it, in addition to controlling their mind. So those three components of view, what I call quantum view, essentially, the uh, entry, you know, realistic view or quantum view and harmonious lifestyle and meditative arts. I think that, that is, that's the comprehensive path to liberation. Right. So would you say, and, and, um, and you talked a little bit about this in your talk, and I wanted to go a little bit deeper in our interview about it <clears throat> because it's something, it's, it's, uh, it's an issue that's really resonant for me personally, and I've written about it myself, which is, um, would you say that the, that the, the shirking of the aspects of the practice that are, that are, that are directing us toward liberation, like the inability to kind of be receptive to that is an inheritance of what I would call scientism or this, you know, uh, seeing in these liberating practices or practices that are oriented towards liberation something that that our tradition sees as religious and there and therefore tries to kind of exclude from um, uh, the orbit of legitimate sciences or legitimate realms of knowledge. Yeah, I mean, I I I think that this is a our commodification and a reduction of meditation to stress reduction, for example, mm -hmm. or yoga to calisthenics is partly a result of our reductionistic paradigm or mm -hmm. scientism, if you call it that, reductionism, materialism, not materialism as in just m buying things, but materialism as if uh, believing only what we can see and perceive with our senses which is a hallmark of the, t the scientific divide of the 17th and 18th century in the Age mm -hmm. of Reason. Uh, of course, may maybe there are other factors or variables that are part of that process, which I'm happy for historians and, and scholars to chime in about. But I think essentially we can say there was a, uh, a parting between science and religion in Europe, rightfully so, as a pushback, against religious indoctrination and and misuse of power. So there needed to be a shift in which people said, no, we need to have reason, we need to have anal analytics, we need to be able to look and examine and control things in a more appropriate, systematic, informed way. And this leads to incredible advances in technology, eventually leads to medicine and uh, breakthroughs in uh, science we send people to the moon, we cure diseases, we in create a global infrastructure, we can communicate with simultaneously with living beings across the planet. Unbelievable achievements. 
But fundamentally, the dark side or the shadow side of that split has meant that we are suspicious of anything religious. Yeah. We are no longer informed or directed or oriented towards connection or spirituality or um, uh, the psyche or any consciousness. Like, for example, you can go to medical school or even in my own case, after 20 years of study and four degrees or three degrees in in, uh, psychology, no definition of mind Mm -hmm. as a psychologist. No definition... A whole academic uh, elite, which I think have become the new Brahman, Brahmanical caste, the way academia mm. and the scientists are now, I think, the, they speak a language and they hold power in the same way that the Catholic Church may have done exactly. several hundred years ago. So I think we have a pendulum swinging between, and this is what human greed and human envy and human pride and human delusion does, is whether you wear uh, a monk's robes or a... You have a PhD and a white lab coat. You abuse power. Mm-hmm. And academia is kind of a closeted elitist group sometimes, can be. I'm not bashing everybody, but I say human, human, our, our human foilties can, 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 can put us into that predicament. And what happens is essentially that we reduce everything and we we are no longer interested or have any definition or have any connection to anything spiritual. Yeah. And so what I was saying in that, I mean, I really want to argue this point, and I'm happy to debate it, but I, I really think that one of the greatest pandemic maladies of our industrial civilization is that we are spiritually malnourished mm-hmm. and that most psychological disorders and medical disorders can actually be traced to a... To a to a common point as a spiritual sickness mm-hmm. of fra- that is f- as a result of our fragmentation from each other, fragmentation from the world of psyche, fragmentation from the unseen world of spirit, fragmentation from the planet and nature and the cycles of nature. We live in big buildings with bricks and, and dial in and delivery and we have no human contact anymore. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really sad and it leaves us utterly dissatisfied and yearning. And, but because we are in a time and place where we've reduced everything to a commodity, when we go into the market to pick something up to heal our... A, we don't know what our real malady is. Right. And B, everything is so commodified when we find something on the shop, uh, on the, in the shopping aisles that says yoga or meditation. It itself has become commodified and reduced. So we're basically eating, you know, we're eating more of the same and not really addressing the fundamental problem. Right, right. And to go back to something that you said that I, I, found really power, I find really powerful is this idea that, you know, science um, has its own dogma in a, in, a, in, in a way that it's actually become the new religion. Like, it, it has a monopoly on truth in a way that in a, in a way that forecloses the possibility of people experiencing spiritual truth. Because it, it excludes the possibility of it altogether. Yeah, and I, I mean, I, I totally agree with you, and I, I, mean, I think this is a fantastic uh, trajectory for a conversation. Um, one of the things I'd like to 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 highlight in that in that assessment is that um, it is it is not de facto by way of the paradigm or the technology or the perspective. Like science isn't inherently right. uh, reductionistic. Religion isn't inherently controlling or yeah. dogmatic. 
it is the misguided use of a tool by a deluded human being that does that. Mm -hmm. One thing that we can say is that uh, in Buddhist history, science and spirituality have never been separated. Mm -hmm. And even though it gets bastardized everywhere on the planet, everything gets bastardized in a way. You can find examples of misguided gurus and all the rest of it everywhere. But essentially, in principle... Buddhism never created a divide between spirit and science Mm -hmm. and actually invited the practitioner and the public into their, to become their own scientist. Mm -hmm. So what you're talking about is an elite group that holds power and privilege, but in a way we, we give up our power because people have MDs and PhDs and 25 years of research and they, they're funded by Harvard or this or Pfizer or whatever, suddenly they're ta- they talk a different language and we feel so inadequate and inferior, we feel like, oh, we'll just give up our power to those people that know. Yeah. And we do that when we go to the doctor. We don't want to really inform ourselves. We, we give away our power and our capacity to do reasoning and, and, to come to, and to arrive to our own conclusion. And I think one of the major invitations the Buddha gave us is to know for ourselves. Mm-hmm. And that knowing for ourselves is both the discovery of the spirit in a scientific way, readily available for everyone, so that everybody can be a contemplative yogi and a scientist not losing their power and discovering ultimate truth, mm. which is really the proposition of what a Buddhist practice or a or a, a yogic practice is really about. Become a scientist to your own experience and discover the truth that the Buddha that the Buddha learned. You know, mm. the Buddha isn't teaching you and saying, you know, smile and be happy, and suddenly you're supposed to be happy. The Buddha is saying, I can't help you, brother. I can't help you. I can teach you. Follow my methods, and you'll see for yourself. I'm not. Don't have to pay me. You don't have to put pennies in my coffer. You don't have to build statues to me. Try for yourself. Observe, which is scientific. Be critical. But you can do it. Mm -hmm. That's a powerful, empowering message. You can be both a scientist and a yogi and discover yourself and heal yourself. Mm -hmm. You don't have to go to Harvard. You don't have to buy. You don't have to be, you know... A privilege from a privileged uh, background. It's not for the special few, but you do have to feel empowered and you do have to take your power back and you do have to apply it. Mm. Mm. Wow, that's amazing. So, you, you know, I want to move a little bit into asking you a question. I want to ask you a question about um, Buddhist psychotherapy because you are a, a Buddhist psychotherapist. And, and so I'm just wondering if we can talk about um, how Buddhist psychotherapy, a little bit how it how it differs from traditional psychotherapy, um, because you know, from my understanding, you know, on the latter, you know, traditional psychotherapy, generally we are affirming the ego, but in Buddhism there is said to be no ego. So how how does this, you know, what 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 is the what what are the stakes and the difference between these two approaches? Well, that's a that's a vast. Uh... That's a vast territory. So if, if, <laughs> I, if I get lost in it, will you, oh, yeah, will you help bring me in. back? <laughs> First, let me, let me just start with broadly what, what I think, you know, how do I arrive at calling myself a Buddhist psychotherapy? Is there such a thing as Buddhist psychotherapy? Is it nonsense? Uh, you know, I would say Buddhist, I was looking, I've been doing a little research into this question because I think it's an important one to ask. Um, 
What is Buddhist psychotherapy? There is no co- coherent uh, system of Buddhist psychotherapy as mm-hmm. such. If you look at the history, we probably could trace the origins to somewhere in the 70s with Chogyam Trungpa, who was a great Tibetan Lama, who mm-hmm. started a series of dialogues with Western students, many of them who had already been trained in psychology. And his students were probably among the first generation of Western psychologists who became influenced by Buddhism. Among them are like Mark Epstein was up there in Colorado during those seminars and Dan Goleman, the emotional intelligence guru and Jack Engler and uh, a number of other Jeffrey Rubin, all of these, you know, what we would call the first generation of Buddhist inspired psychoanalytic or depth psychotherapy psychologists. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, you know, and then so Trungpa ended up then creating a, a, a program where you could be trained in contemplative psychotherapies, which were therapies that didn't necessarily do a hybrid, I have to comment and critique on. They were basically saying, if you just learn Buddhist science, how they are traditionally taught, we see them as a therapy or a psychology in and of themselves. Mm. That being said, then people did, for the next 20 years, people were doing a lot of integrative work. So you can be a Buddhist psychologist or a Buddhist psychotherapist and be doing your own integrative work where you draw on, let's say, cognitive therapy and Buddhism. You could draw on psychoanalysis and Buddhism. You could be interested in just the meditative part and be a cognitive, a mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, for example. In my own case, my studies come by way of the lineage of Dalai Lama to his uh, to Robert Thurman to my teacher Joe Luizzo, mm-hmm. and in that lineage, Joe Luizzo was probably among you know, was the first really to in my in my in my lineage really to to do a systematic in depth study of traditional Buddhist studies and receive a PhD under Robert Thurman at Columbia, but also have an intensive medical training in psychiatry and psychotherapy at Harvard along with some of the one of some of the greatest pioneers in psychoanalysis at that time so real and really spent 20 30 and 40 years integrating them into a seamless uh system so that by the time when I came along to to learn from him he was basically teaching me so I'm the the first recipient of an already systematized hybrid of Tibetan Buddhism and psychoanalysis, for example. Mm. But, but, and I call myself a Buddhist psychologist or a Buddhist psychotherapist, but you could find somebody who has a different lineage and is drawing from Kagyu th- uh, Tibetan Buddhism or Gelukpa Tibetan Buddhism or insight-oriented Buddhism and another kind of Western psychology. So it's all, you know, it's so new and it's so fresh and that title can be so misleading and it's really important to ask questions and see what the lineage is and see, you know, what it really means. And I think it's very rich and interesting. But that, that be it that as may, I think the other question was also uh, more granular. You know, what a, well, this whole thing about ego, I think, is your question, right? Mm-hmm. How, how, do, how do we reconcile the fact that in Western psychology there is an attempt to reinforce the ego, whereas in, um, in Buddhism there's an attempt to maybe, uh, well, poorly translated as to eliminate the ego. So mm-hmm. I'll, let me talk about that. I think it's all hogwash. I mean, I, I, I hate the word ego because I think it's yeah. in, as it entered pop culture, I think it is just so misleading. So they, you have all these people practicing yoga and think that they're trying to get rid of their ego as right. if the ego is something bad. But if you yeah. just look at 
what ego is, at least in Freudian terminology, the ego is a is a mediator or moderating principle of the psyche that helps one negotiate one's instincts and in the face of cultural norms or expectations. Mm-hmm. So you'd have to say it is a it is a balancing structure of the psyche and the personality to have an ego. Without an ego, you can fall into delusion and wind up at, you know, the the psych ward at Cornell, you know, hospital. So like you don't want to get rid of your ego. Yeah. What you want to do is you want to make your ego flexible. Mm. A rigid ego, when you, and anytime there's rigidity in the psyche, there's dysfunction. Okay, if you look at any network or any system whenever there is rigidity on the one hand or chaos on the other, there's dysfunction or disease. And I'm sure, I'm not an acupuncturist, I don't come from a traditional Chinese medicine, but I'm sure if you look at Indian and Chinese medical approaches, it's all about balance between these two polarities of too much chaos and too little rigidity. And I'd say the ego is the same. Too little ego boundary, you get these states of delusion, you have people feeling like they're they're not there, they don't exist, the world doesn't exist, they'll just drive off a bridge or whatever, and too rigid, too tight, you get these very strict, rigid, kind of characterologically neurotic people that are very fixed and and difficult to relate to and, mm. and overly identified with their role or their position or what nice. happened to them. And so I think it's not the job of just psychotherapy to make balance and fluidity of the ego. Why couldn't we say that it's actually the the approach or the purpose of both. Mm-hmm. In, in, in a way, how could you spiritualize psychology and how can you psychologize spiritual practice so that we're, they're really kind of doing the same thing? Yeah. In other words, I don't want to put, you know, I don't want to polarize Buddhism as working on transcendence somehow and mm-hmm. psychology as working on. I mean, I think that happened, if I, if I remember my research correctly, when I was doing my dissertation, I think there was a period where we had a very famous statement by Jack Engler where it was seen that you should be somebody before you be nobody. That's a very <laughs> famous statement in which they car- made a cartography of a spectrum of practices in which psychology was first to strengthen the ego, meditation second to see through the ego. Mm. And I guess conceptually it appealed to me. I think probably Ken Wilber was the first to introduce the topic in his uh, seminal work, Spectrum of Consciousness. Yeah. And I think I think it's helpful as a cartography and as a map, but I don't think in practice it actually really speaks to the nuance and complexities of both traditions. If you talk to Joe, my teacher, and if you talk to some of these well-established psychoanalytic figures who have exposure to both traditions, they'll tell you from the psychoanalytic literature that it's not just about firming up the ego. Mm. You know, Jung wasn't just about firming up the ego. No. You know, so like I think it's just a little bit of a pop cultural view that needs nuancing that, you know, who's to say that they're really doing something so different. I mean, I would also then, okay. So then let me challenge myself. I'll, I'll rebut myself if you don't mind. Go for it. (laughs) I also think that I wrote an article, which I'm happy for you to post or repost. It's just a very light, cheeky bit of, um, retort, uh, called self care and selflessness, a contradiction. Yes. And what I wrote there was essentially trying to challenge this misunderstanding that Buddhism is about 
not having a self. Mm -hmm. And that comes from a very poor translation of the teachings on Anatman, Mm -hmm. which is, in context, the Buddhist rebuttal to the Hindu yoga or Vedanta assertion that there is an Atman. And what he was critiquing was not that there is some kind of soul or essentiality, but that, 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 that essence or soul isn't fixed or rigid. Right. So he, you know, you have to contextualize his teaching on no self or non-essence or no soul, not as a nihilistic position or assertion, but as a retort to the sensibility that there's something independent and fixed, like somehow your soul is in another world or, or your soul is untouched by everything that you have that happens in your life. Like you have all this karmic propensity and tumult, but somehow your soul is untouched and crystal and pure. The Buddha had a problem with that because his teachings were on causality that everything is interconnected. So, you know, if you have disturbing thoughts or you have positive thoughts, it must be it must be having an impact on all layers of your psyche. There can't be something that's independent. Otherwise, how could it be related to? You know, if you just look at the word absolute, for example, absolute by definition means non-relational. So how could your soul, how could you ever relate to your soul? That's, that's one of the contentions that the mm. Buddhists assert. How could you ever touch the soul? How could you ever reach the soul? How could you, if the soul is independent and absolute, how could you ever relate to it? So I don't think the Buddha was really saying there's no self or there's no soul. What he was saying is that it's relational, and if it's relational, it can change. Your soul can evolve. The imprinting on your soul can be transformed. You can purify, you know, all of these things. So... It's not suggesting there's no self. All this mumbo-jumbo about getting rid of yourself is is actually just, um, not only is it philosophically wrong, but it's dangerous. And mm-hmm. that's, that's my argument in this short little paper because I think we should take care of ourselves. I think in Western culture, we don't do a very good job taking care of our wounds. And we come from fragmented families. We have a lot of deep wounds we find yoga or Buddhism that says transcend yourself and we enter into a spiritual bypass where Mm -hmm. we end up neglecting hurts, wounds, addictive patterns, fragmented family relations. And I don't think that that's healthy (laughs) and I don't think that that leads to an optimal outcome. So I was trying to suggest that selflessness is not about not having a self. Mm-hmm. Selflessness is about more of a fluidity about having a self. Yeah. How can you have a self that's permeable? Yeah. How do you have mistakes that you can learn from? How do you be a teacher but also be a student and be a father and a son? How do you have multiple roles and fluidity? Again, it's about balance and fluidity. How can you not be so... You know, I was at a conference the other day. Sorry to to rant, but Go I was at a it. conference the other day. And <laughs> they said they'd like, before the conference started, they said, we'd like to, you to turn to your uh, fellow, you know, uh, not spectator, what would you call it? Um, attendee, mm. you know, <laughs> and instead of asking, what do you do? You know, when you're at a perfect, you're at a, you're in an event and you don't know the person sitting next to you. And they asked you, will you turn to that person? And instead of saying, What do you do? They invited us to ask, what is your passion? Mm. And why are you here? Mm -hmm. And I thought, wow, that's so good. Because 
isn't that the first question in American culture that we ask a new person? And especially why? in New York. Especially in New York. Yeah. And why? Yeah. And why? Because we are so identified with what we do as if that's who we are. And so selflessness is not about not having a self. Selflessness is about being fluid so that you're not just your job. You're not just your role in society. You're not just your gender. You're not just this. You're not just that. You're all of them at the same time. Mm -hmm. And self-care is about really taking care of the wounds because if you neglect them, they end up owning you. Mm -hmm. So there's, to my mind, I try to reconcile those two things in this little article so that we can do both, take care of ourselves, and try to be more fluid, less identified, less rigid human beings. Right. So it's more that rather than there not being a self, it's that we're not, I, we're not overly identifying with any kind of um, grouping of labels that falls under this um, banner of the self in such a way that when those labels start to shift and dissolve, we don't suffer, right? Because if we're over-identified with them, then we're going to grasp for them as they slip away from us. Yes, I agree. And I, I would add to that that uh, just to take it out of the conceptual, mm-hmm. when you're hurt, you know, I'd ask people that are listening now to think about the last time they were hurt. Isn't there an internal sense of this is me? Mm. This is who I really am. I am unlovable. Yeah. I am unworthy. You know, you made a mistake and you've been exposed amongst your peers and that feeling mm-hmm. grabs you and tugs at you at your heart and you become flush. And as soon as that experience happens, there is a rising out of it, a sense of this is me. Somehow you've seen through the veils of my, you know, marketing presentation and branding and you found the real me. Mm-hmm. And I think it usually happens in moments of wounding, shame. Shame and fear are the two ones that come to mind, where the sense of self is so honestly palpable. It's not an intellectual idea. It feels in there to be me. Yeah. So what the Buddha... And so when... You're right. So when we feel that, instantaneously it's so painful we try to overcompensate get away from grab you know this you know the safety and the the validation that we're yearning for move away from the shame and the vulnerability that's too painful we yeah. react where i think you know the buddhist uh, contemplative approach is really not to to shy away from that opportunity but to go deeper into the wound which is an act of compassion, because if you think about it, that's the most fragile, vulnerable, you know, place in our being, that exposure. So it really demands a lot of compassion to stay connected with it, almost like it's a, you know, your child. I call it the inner child. Those moments of wounding is the exposure of the traumatized child inside of us. It demands, when you bring your attention to it, radical presence to it, that is a kind of compassion, act of compassion. Mm. That is provisional for a later act of anal- analysis where you can begin to see it's a story, it's a set of feelings. You start to parse it out. It's 
it's an event, it's feelings, it's emotions, it's sensations, it's a storyline. You start to see that it's not a composite, concrete, calcified me. Right. It's, it's, it's a conglomeration of factors. Mm-hmm. And when you get to that granular level, that can really be... Sometimes it happens only in retrospect, but that building on that intuition that you can gain that this isn't really me, this is a painful moment. That's yeah. really liberating. Yeah. 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 I, I want to go back a little bit and just touch on something that, you know, you've mentioned with regards to the self and, 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 and the, the not self, you know, as it's, as it's sort of... Um, um, problematically understood, and what I've encountered in my own experience with this idea was as a part of, or said, sort of tangentially, or you know, I wasn't intimately in this community um, around Geshe Michael Roach, but I, but I was sort of tangentially involved with it because of the teacher training I was was involved in, and and um, and this idea of emptiness that was sort of being. Um, talked about a lot in in the talks um, from the teachers who were associated with this community and and I and this the idea of emptiness which always felt very problematic to me was that you know everything is empty everything is empty so everything essentially is uh, you know it's empty of its own self-existing nature so any nature that is applied to it is coming from you which always led me to then the issue of some you know for example an example like you know you're in an abusive relationship and you're being beaten up by your partner or emotional, you know, or there's some kind of like emotional abuse. And this, and if you're operating within this sort of like philosophical idea or this interpretation of that idea, you would be, it would be very easy for you to think, oh, well, the abuse is just my projection or like the emotional, you know, the emotional um, harassment is, is, is just coming from me. So if it's empty of the quality that I see, then, then it's my responsibility to to like reframe how I'm perceiving the situation. So, can you explain, you know, how that interpretation of emptiness is off the mark, and and what emptiness actually means? Sure, I'd love to. And um, there's a couple different ways that we can do it. <clears throat> I mean, I think you can't talk about emptiness without talking about karma. Mm-hmm. So in order to get to, in order to see how that was misguided, that approach or way of teaching it is misguided, you'd have to include both. So let's, let's start with emptiness. So let's define emptiness as the lack of inherent existence to any phenomenon. So that means that there's no phenomenon that isn't non, that isn't relational. Mm Mm-hmm. So you can say that emptiness is a negation. It's saying that something isn't there. So what's not there? Nothing is there inherently. There's no atom. If you just think about Newtonian physics, there's no building block. There's no substrate. There's no atom, fixed atom. If you go into things, you analyze them, you won't come to a building block. Mm -hmm. Because what's in the building block? Exactly. If you go in, if you go quantum, you find that in the building block, in the molecule, and some upon the atomic particle, there's mostly wave pattern. So, and space, or you could say that the primal layer of substrate of reality is energy and consciousness. 
but none of it's fixed or fluid or atomic. So emptiness is pointing to that reality that ultimately there isn't anything atomic. Everything is more relational and fluid. That's what's really there is the relationality is there. Mm-hmm. Karma, so then you'd have to let, let me, I should have probably started with what's called the two truths. So in Buddhism, they always say there are two levels of reality. You're perceiving and living in what's called conventional reality, the world of relationships and forms and experiences and sights and sounds and smells. This is considered conventional reality. Our defective apparatus of our senses, brain structure, eyes, tongue, nose, mouth, senses, draws in data from that relational reality, and we impute that things exist inherently. Mm -hmm. So conventional reality in Buddhism is also called deceptive reality Mm -hmm. because things appear to our our physical apparatus as if they exist independently as concrete substructures. The other reality is the ultimate reality, which is not a distinct reality. It's the same reality, but seen from a quantum view, which is none of those things that are hitting our, our, our perceptual apparatus exist that way that they appear. Everything is much more fluid. And these two realities are said to be non-dual. In other words, we live in the world of conventions but it is be only because those conventions are quantumly open that we can even have an experience. Mm-hmm. For example, if we were really subatomic building block particles, we could never really change. Everything would be fixed. So we wouldn't even have a moment. Nothing would be fluid. You couldn't bounce up against something. You couldn't have a new idea. You couldn't shift. Uh, you know, milk couldn't turn into butter. You know, if milk was inherently what it is, it could never transform into butter. That's the classic one from the text. So these two levels of reality are actually the same reality. There is the reality of openness, which is beyond perception. It can only be inferred or directly perceived with the yogic intuition. And then there is the deceptive perception of reality or relative reality, the world of relations. That relational reality or conventional reality operates according to a causal principle or a causal science called karma. In other words, things have causation. Things appear, abide, and disappear, not randomly and not because God put them there, but because they're functioning according to a trajectory of their own causation. And we live in a consensual world where each of us independently are creating our own experience, but we're sharing an experience, Mm. okay? So what I think part of the problem with that kind of teaching is that it presumes everything that we're experiencing is because we've created it. Mm -hmm. So if somebody hits you, or I'm sitting across from Jacob right now, and if I kick him, this, this particular teaching would suggest that you did something bad in your past Mm -hmm. to make me kick you, which I find objectionable because it, what it assumes is that it's all about you mm-hmm. and I acted independently mm-hmm. and I didn't have any of my own volition and I didn't have a choice. What's probably more accurate from a karmic teaching is when I kick you, could you have different kinds of perceptions about me kicking you? And you'd have to say what? Yes. Could you give me two or three? If I kicked you, what's one perception that would come up in your mind? 
an interpretation about that. You're an asshole. I'm an asshole. Okay. And could you give me another? I deserved it. I deserved it. Good. Can you give me one more? Um, the couch kicked your leg toward me. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Or you could say, maybe I'm having a hard time. What's, yeah, what's yeah. up my butt? Yeah. Right? So the me kicking you, or what we call in science, the event, isn't necessarily something you created. However, the perception of the event, the subjective appraisal of the event, has a kind of causality to it. I call this the glass half full, glass half half empty principle. Have you ever met someone who has a glass half full perspective? They're usually really great people to Mm -hmm. hang out with. Yeah. But they're not born that way. Everybody can be glass half full. How do you get that way? Glass half full is a perceptual result of a karmic or causal set of activities. In other words, we can shift our perception so that we could perceive events in the world differently. Classic example I use is a burning building. A burning building happens and and people are shouting from the third floor. I look at the burning building and I get terrified and I start running another way. A fireman looks at the building and goes into action and springs forth up those stairs to save those people. It's the same burning building. What's the difference between me and a fireman? It's training. Mm -hmm. That fireman went through a set of trainings to uh, adjust their perception, to uh, eliminate fear, to see uh, crisis as opportunity, to empower themselves with a skill set to spring forth into action, and prides themselves on saving living beings. So all of that conditions, all of that prior activity conditions a future perceptual moment. Mm. And that is what the marriage between karma and emptiness is about. Emptiness is an acknowledgement that our perception is inherently open. It could be shifted. Then the question is, how do you shift it? Well, the recommendations from the Yoga Sutras, the Yamas and the Niyamas, and the recommendations from the Buddhist soteriology position, the guidelines for the uh, for a practitioner, include things like non-harm, non-stealing, non-lying, non-sexually objectifying, non-detoxifying, uh, non-toxifying, avoiding certain things and adopting certain things in your training regimen. Why? Because God likes them and God, you'll enter heaven in, because you do them? No, because they actually change your perception into glass half full perception. If you want abundance, if I ask you to reach into your pocket, grab your wallet right now and pull out how much money you have, if it's a $10 bill, for example, is there any inherent value to the $10? If I look at it, if Jacob looks at it, if another friend looks at it, we could each look at that same $10 and feel it is it has an, a value that mm-hmm. we're ascribing to it. Somebody could think like it's nothing. Another person can, think, can feel really grateful and really happy to have it. Another person feels motivated to give it away. Another person, you know, feels like they don't have enough. Yeah. So the $10 is empty of having any inherent value. 
at the same time, you can never see it as empty. Empty is a negation. It's not something you can see. The, the, the lack of inherent value allows you to project upon it your own perceptual value. You can ascribe because it's a blank screen. Everything in reality is a blank, blank screen. Events are blank screens. Crises are blank screen, uh, screens. Moments of joy are blank screens. I know plenty of people that have joyous moments and actually feel crippled by them. People get a promotion and they feel so scared by them. Another person desperately wants a promotion and feels validated by them. Everything is empty. It has no inherent value or meaning. Meaning is ascribed. How do we get to that meaning? We get to that meaning. We get to that moment of experience. Oh, that hurts me. How could they do that? Oh, poor them. Why are they going through that difficult time? Because of a set of things that we're doing in the past. If we want to build a sense of abundance, for example, the classic texts acknowledge that we should be generous. Give away things. Think about other people. You know, and also it adds sometimes asking for things for you when it's appropriate. That can also be a moment of generosity too. Not just giving them away, but asking if you're coming from a place of really being meek, for example, if you've been very starved and ashamed as a child, for example, and you don't feel entitled in a healthy way to ask, sometimes asking is an act of generosity to who? To you. Mm. You know, so that builds a kind of residue on perception. Mm. And I think that 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 marriage of karma and emptiness somehow got misguided Mm -hmm. to mean that everything, all the events that are happening to us are happening to us because of what we've done. Mm -hmm. And I think underneath that is an inherently shaming, myopic, uh, perspective. I think what it does is it's, it blames the victim and it also too broadly suggests that everything that's happening in the world is because of me. For example, from my research and from my mentor's research, we have found that karmic, uh, karma teachings are characterized in Buddhist and Indian philosophy into different disciplines. So there is always a premise that things are happening causally. But there's no, no clear uh, teaching that everything is happening causally because of one's mind. Mm-hmm. So in other words, there is a biological karma. Organic plants and biology and illnesses have an etiology. They have a causation of their own. Mm. Another example is the environment. Tsunamis and natural disasters if I get a meteorologist to come in, they could well tell me why it's raining today. It's not because of my mind. They have a causal etiology that can be explained, but they're not psychologically causal. A third category is the one that we talk about is the karmic category, but we misascribe all the others as karma. Karma really is psychology. There's a psychological causation in the mind through intentions and actions that color perception. Mm -hmm. They don't create natural disaster. You didn't give yourself cancer because you were a bad little girl. That is preposterous. It's shaming. It's not grounded in tradition. I think it's probably used in some way to serve some some sort of agenda, power agenda. Wow. 
Yeah, that is such an excellent answer. And I think it's probably the most satisfactory answer I've ever heard to the question of karma. Because anytime this comes up, I feel like it is it is reduced to exactly the the characterization of it that you're saying. And my question always is, well, what about the Holocaust? Are we to then say that six million people somehow did something collectively that made that 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 were that led to some kind of karmic retribution? So and 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 almost every time I never get a satisfactory answer to that. There's always a weird sort of sidestepping of it that, you know, it's just very refreshing to hear that perspective because, you know, it's you no one wants to swallow that pill. Yeah. I mean I, I when I teach this I get confronted all the time. I do have to say, other than Geshe Michael Roach, it still is a pervasive party line amongst most Dharma centers and most Dharma mm. teachers. So I don't I wouldn't just ascribe it to one person, but I oh, think, yeah, for sure. I think it is a bottom line party line. When you hear the teachings of tar- karma, there's always one person in there that feels like how can you justify when innocent child children are are injured or hurt or abused? And I think that's frankly preposterous and ridiculous and insulting that it's their fault children yeah. are innocent they don't have any intentionality if you we doesn't we don't have to abandon causality yeah. any given moment can be dissected and analyzed into a causation that child was there and another human being with a set of distorted impulses from their own childhood trauma meet in one moment and there is an abuse and somehow, Jacob, that is unacceptable to the human psyche as mm-hmm. an explanation. Because yeah. the next question is, why? Yeah. Why then? Why now? Mm-hmm. Why me? And so the party line Buddhist teachers will go ahead and say, yes, you for a reason. You did something in the past. And I'm more apt to say, I'm sorry you struggle and you want an answer but I've given you an answer it's not personal mm-hmm. it's not why did it happen to me it happened for a reason I'm not saying it didn't happen for a reason you were there and somebody with a defilement was there too mm-hmm. and you both met and something really unfortunate that wasn't your fault happened but you now have to deal with it and we can empower you to have the most constructive and the most compassionate relationship to that horrific event so that you can transform your life and you can transform adversity to advantage. Mm-hmm. That's my approach. Yeah, that's a great approach. All right, now I want to go to and talk about something that you said in your talk. Um, you actually asked the question, and then you said, I'll talk about it another time. And I was like, okay, well, I'll ask him in the interview. And that is about nirvana. And you said, <clears throat> and the question was, does nirvana mean there is no more sadness? And so I would love for you to just, first of all, talk about, you know, for those that maybe are new to the concept, what is nirvana? And how a, um, a certain understanding would perhaps or has seen it as meaning that there is no more sadness, that somehow it transcends. And, and I'm, I'm imagining that you're going to carve out an alternative point of view. Well, i got to preface by saying a lot of these questions, I'm not a Buddhist scholar like my mentor. So, you know, I hope if you, if you interview Joe or Robert Thurman, they can give you a book. I'll ask him to testify to your comments. Okay, yeah. Because <laughs> I, I think it's important when you start talking about Sanskrit terms and Buddhist uh, terminology and Buddhist metaphysics and that there is a scholastic and scholarly body of knowledge that takes for tremendous uh, life commitment to really right. um, invest in 
and I certainly don't want to cheapen it. I want to acknowledge that I'm not a scholar. And, yeah. Um, but I have enough exposure to be able to answer your question, but I just want to have that caveat and, sure. that, and, and excuse myself from what might be a more thorough explanation given someone's uh, rigorous background and training. But as I understand it, nirvana is the... The word nirvana is extinguished. It, mm. It's like uh, when, a, when you blow out a candle. It means cessation, the end. And so then you'd have to ask, well, what is it the end of? Is it the end of life? When you gain enlightenment, is that the end? Of course, if you look closely at, the, at some of the Buddha's sutras, there are several questions that the Buddha did not answer, at least in the first 500 years of his legacy and his teachings, one of which is what happens when you get enlightened and what happens when you, when you reach nirvana, when you achieve nirvana. If it is blown out, do I disappear? Can I, can I have nirvana and be alive and embodied? These are the questions. These are really pressing questions. So then the second question is, what is it that's extinguished? What is extinguished in nirvana, cessation? What is, cessation means to end. What ends? So there it's clear. What The Buddha said what ends is karma and klesha. Karma means reactive action or poisonous or unwholesome action. And klesha are the disturbing emotions, and the root klesha, the mula klesha, is the identifiable ego or self or independent atomic sensibility or inherent sense of self. Mm -hmm. So what's being extinguished as a result of your arduous contemplative training are the root affliction the sense of me being me as an unworthy, separate, unlovable, fragmented human being, independent from the world, independent from relations. When I close my eyes in a moment of wounding and I feel myself to be so inherently worthless, that me, is when that is seen through, through a quantum analysis, intuitively disentangled, then the resulting afflictive emotions of envy and pride and competitiveness and yearning and grasping, all of those naturally are byproducts of the erroneous false conviction of separation. So those are eliminated. And if those are eliminated, all the consequential negative behaviors of lying and stealing and slandering and and divisive speech and uh, all of the rest of the karmic residual uh, activities that color future moments, those are extinguished. So it becomes a chain link broken in reverse. Mm. So then the next question is, once the primal, erroneous calcification of self is seen through, not eliminated, because it doesn't exist to eliminate, it's seen through as a lie, as a deception, and the afflictive emotions that become that arise on its basis and the reactive actions that come from the afflictive emotions have all been released, what remains? Mm. And I think, you know, in the, if I'm not, you you correct me if I'm not, I mean, I think this is what is called the Jiva Mukti in the yoga Mm -hmm. tradition is Mm -hmm. the living liberated. Mm -hmm. And the Bodhisattva is the same as someone who still lives in a body 
who lives in the world in the matrix of reality, still lives in the worlds of conventions and forms, would live in time and place, would be gendered, would probably have a personality. I mean, when I try to answer these questions, I don't want to... I'm not a scholar, so I can't answer them scholastically, but I can answer them intuitively and experientially. Personally, I think His Holiness is enlightened. Does he have a personality? Does he have emotions? If you see and you have his interview, yes, he has a personality. He's a quirky, funny little, you know, very um, playful and in, and uh, but also very critical. Like I, I've read that he really likes um, watches and <laughs> likes to take them apart and disassemble them. <laughs> And likes to reassemble them. So he has that mm. sort of very sharp, analytic, but also very playful. I mean, he has a personality. He has a personality. He's not yeah. free or transcendent of a personality. Yeah. And I've also heard him very frankly say he has lustful feelings. I mean, that is say no more. Mm-hmm. I'm sure he has great sadness when he sees not only his own people survive a Holocaust and be displaced, but when other people feel that. Yeah. So this is someone who is transcendent of self-imposed suffering, karma and klesha, but still remains in a body that is actually getting older, that he has to feed and support, that he sits on the tread or runs on the treadmill in the morning hours, that he has to take medicine when he gets sick, that has relationships, probably some closer than others, has a very real lived experience, gets tired, gets probably frustrated, you know, probably gets angry, but has an amazing way of relating and dealing with them so that they don't overcome him, that they don't probably distract him from his mission, that everything becomes flexible and transformable and included in the, in the matrix of reality and of lived experience. So that's what I think Jiva Mukti is. And so I think, you know, when I, th- I think about Chogyam Trungpa too and other great lamas, my own masters... They shed tears when people die. There is humanity there. Mm-hmm. Transcendence doesn't mean transcendence of humanity. In fact, I would run the other way if people weren't having a human reaction to real human suffering. I would clearly run the other way. Something is wrong when people are not of the world and not of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you see that happening a lot in, in, in certain regimes of meditation it's this uh, i think it's uh christopher wallace who said in his interview that you know there's the process of awakening and then there's the process of integration it's like you can have all these realizations but if you're not actually integrating them into your experience then you know what's it for really i mean i think that i i listen to that and i bow to him because i think that is such a reaffirming critical important um topic to put out there because I think you have a whole wellspring uh, a movement in fact of people that are interested in liberation thank God but I think we have magical ideas about what it is. Yeah totally. And I also think that people in positions of authority in the, in the spiritual community who have deep insight and also fall prey to blind spots mm-hmm. and I think when we look at scandals for example I think we have to be clear that it is possible for people to have at the one side of their being, tremendous intuitive insight into the deep nature of reality and have neglected other sides of their personality or their subjectivity or their history 
and therefore fall, continue to fall prey to human foilties and fragilities and impulses. And so Christopher's comments really brings to light that, you know, just having breakthroughs isn't the end of the, the path. Yeah. That there is a, and if you look at the 10 Bhumis, this long uh, curriculum in the, at least in the Indian Buddhist science curriculum about the pathway to enlightenment, where they go through a very systematic and intricate cartography of consciousness as it evolves. There are these opening experiences, these profound opening experiences, but it doesn't end there. There is a vast terrain of consciousness evolving where more and more uh, instincts and subtleties of impulses are purified along the way after the breakthrough moment. Yeah. Well, well, since the breakthrough is what we're all hoping to get to, and then the integration, I think that's a good um, sort of end note. But I do want to talk to you a little bit, actually, before we close it out, uh, about um, the Nalanda Institute, which you've um, uh, which you're the assistant director of, yes? Yeah. Assistant director of the Nalanda Institute for Contemplative Science, also um, partnering with us and sponsoring um, the Radical Presence Conference that um, Miles is going to be speaking on in July 15th. But, you know, the Nalanda Institute, what I admire about it is that, for me at least, it represents a real a shift away from traditional academic models um, of education, something that I really aspire to actually with the Embodied Philosophy Project. Um, so, and, and we've talked about this before, which is why I sort of thought about asking you this question. Um, but I'm, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about sort of why you maybe feel that there's a need for these kinds of models. And, and that might, I think we've already talked a little bit about kind of a critique of academia, but uh, um, specifically sort of the need in, in response to that academic elitism, the need for these kinds of newer, innovative platforms. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I mean, our brand or identity of, at Nalanda, we really, we really focused hard on first acknowledging what the possibilities or the, of the marketplace where we could position ourselves and mm-hmm. what we didn't want to be. We didn't want to be a Dharma center mm-hmm. yeah. um, because we don't have legitimate gurus. We are psychologists and medical providers and healthcare providers with st- steeped in tradition but we're not we don't sell ourselves as gurus we're not we're not going to give initiations we're not going to collect a following we're not going to be the epitome of 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 uh an enlightened life mm-hmm. we are human beings living in the world we're professionals first um we believe in traditions we have the lineages of yoga and tibetan buddhism 40 years joluitso studied myself 20 our other colleagues and peers a lifetime commitment of uh, to to both some Western healthcare approach and some Eastern philosophy, whatever it might be. But we're not gurus, and we're not a traditional Dharma center. Right. On the other hand, we're not. We don't align with the institution because we also find that alienating and restrictive. Yeah. For example, one of our mentors, Bob Thurman who was the first endowed chair in Tibetan Buddhism at Columbia University and a longtime friend of His Holiness and a sincere practitioner uh, through and through and probably the first Westerner to become a Tibetan Buddhist monk, has also very candidly commented that his, his opportunities to teach Buddhism in academia were severely restricted. Mm. Um, for example, he couldn't teach meditation. Yeah. 
And of course, why is that? We, we could come back to the argument that we set up at the beginning of the talk with the whole materialism and reductionism and the age of reason, where you cannot teach so-called spirituality or religion even in the religion department. <laughs> you have to be a scientist. Mm -hmm. You have to talk about concept and theories, but don't go around practicing it. And it, you remain closeted if you do and dare not bring them into the teaching room. So he built, in, in partnership with His Holiness, the Tibet House, mm. where he could freely teach as a cultural center to preserve Tibetan Buddhism, freely teach all the arts and sciences uh, to anybody, to the lay public. And so we more align and we have partnered with Tibet House. They become our partner and our venue where Nalanda gives our teachings. But we are more mm. aligned with that because it gives us the freedom to exercise to be practitioners teaching technologies and sciences to the public without the restrictions of academia, but yet grounded in, in rigor and scientific investigation and research, and that not tipping into the Dharma Center where we are doing rituals, and not, not that I don't enjoy them, I thoroughly enjoy them, but they're not for everybody, and they can be sometimes alienating. So we find that we're trying to strike a balance where we're neither alienating people being too rigidly academic, yet preserving the, the rigor and not alienating people with ritual, but preserving the culture, if you will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's carving. And, and, it, and it's a laboratory. It's not perfect, okay, by any means. And, but, but I want to say that that's a little bit what we're trying to aspire for. Well, you've launched a, um, a pretty um, epic course that's commencing in October. Do you want to talk a little bit about it, this program that, that is going to be happening at Nalanda? So the October program is the launch of a yoga psychology program, which is Nalanda's attempt to bring back its sister partnership, Buddhism and yoga. At one time, they were you know, living and practicing together in, in early India, and for some reason, because of colonialism and other factors, um, you know, were either uh, pushed out or went underground and definitely divided. Um, so we are... After teaching mainly Buddhism at the Institute for over 15 years, we're now uh, developing programming that brings back the contemplative science and psychology of yoga. And partly we do this because we find that yoga trainings are a dime a dozen, and not to say that they're... Um, don't have profound benefit and aren't uh, rigorous. They often are very vigorous, given the standards uh, of Yoga Alliance, but often don't include enough psychology yoga, yeah. and neuroscience. So we, we find it to be one of our main co contributions is to give the depth philosophy of either Buddhism or yoga, but through a particular lens of health research, neuroscience, and psychotherapy. And I'm happy for you to talk to Joe because he's spearheading that program. Yeah, I'm very excited about it. I would love to take it to myself someday because it, it's totally epic and the people on staff are incredible. Um, so I'll definitely put in the show notes the link for that because um, I want our listeners to be able to check it out. Um, I chuckled a little bit when you mentioned the rigor of Yoga Alliance because as someone who's built a curriculum... Um, according to Yoga Alliance standards, I have to say they are not so rigorous. Okay. <laughs> but that's actually another conversation I'm going to have with somebody in the future about Yoga Alliance and 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 sort of like um, the influence that they that they have uh, on on this kind of curriculum development. Because um, I think that 
the Nalanda Institute is actually creating and what I hope to create through embodied philosophy are are curriculums that are much much deeper and much more rigorous and 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 um, and are going to really start to allow people to kind of um, get a much deeper understanding of these traditions. So, so I'm so glad Nalanda is a is a part of that movement. Yeah. So thank you so much. This has been so great, Miles. It's been lovely to talk to you and uh, to get your perspective and your wisdom on so many important um, topics, philosophically, psychologically. So thank you so much, and have a wonderful rest of your day. Appreciate being here, and we really appreciate the partnership and the level of uh, you know rigor and warm-heartedness that you bring to all your programming. And so I feel like a great privilege to get to know you and hope we have future uh, partnership, uh, long and healthy partnership in the future to really um, help, you know, I think we share a common mission, which is really to provide a place for people to learn these traditional uh, technologies and sciences in a meaningful way in our in our practical Western life. So I think uh, we share that and I appreciate the opportunity. We definitely do. Thank you so much.